Inverse Genius, episode 23, The Dresden Files. In this episode, Don talks with Stephanie Fry and Ben Blythe about Jim Butcher's Dresden File books. Inverse Genius is sponsored by our incredible Patreons at patreon.com slash obg, but we've also added a pod pledge page, so you can head on over to podpledge.com, look for Inverse Genius there, and check us out. We truly appreciate all the support we get from our listeners. Thank you very much. Welcome to another episode of Inverse Genius. I'm Donald Dennis. You can find me staggering blindly through the internet as Walsfio. Uh, Inverse Genius is brought to you by Inverse Genius, a host of many other cool podcasts like Onboard Games, on RPGs, Games in Schools and Libraries, and the Room Escape Divas. And today I am here with my Games in Schools and Libraries co-host, Stephanie Fry. Hello. Hello, Stephanie. Um, welcome to the show. Let everybody know where you can be found. You can find me on Twitter at Steph F. Fry. Steph F. Fry. Okay. Steph F. Fry. The Fry being F-R-E-Y. And is that where they can also find all of your other stuffs? You can, actually. Excellent. And who else is here with us today? Uh, you can just call me Ben Blythe for this one. All right, Ben. So uh, where can you be found on the internet? I can be found on Twitter at Flailing Writer because, you know, that's what I am at heart. I can also be found on WordPress at Blythe Writer. Nice. Just blithely sailing along on the internet. Yeah, B-L-Y-T-H-E, if you're curious. Excellent. And so today, we're going to be talking about an author that all of us have some... Uh, well, we're interested in his works, if nothing else. Uh, that would be, what, uh, Jim Butcher, author of The Dresden Files. Cue the cool theme song. Or that. Yeah. We'll, we'll go with that. Beautiful. And in fact, I think mostly we're just going to be talking about the Dresden Files because I hate to admit it, I'm completely unfamiliar with anything else he's done. Yeah, I haven't read the other one either. What? I mean... No, mm. I haven't read it. Woo! Have you? Yes. Well, one of them. Actually, two of them. He's also done a series called Codex Alira, and he wrote a Spider-Man novel. Which, oh, that's right! Yeah. A legit Marvel-approved of Spider-Man novel thingy? Yeah. I've still got it if you ever want to borrow it. Well, I guess time's running out. So if ever is not the correct answer. <laughs> I mean, they make mail for a reason. For now. For now. But oh, we're not going to talk politics. All right. Too real. Uh, I guess before we get into the Dresden Files and whatnot, we should probably talk about, uh, well, how do we come across Dresden or how do we come across the author? This is where I get to do the uh, the stupid, hey, I knew him when. Because I went to OU, where he went to OU, and we had some of the same friends, and I've been told we met, and I can't remember him, and I'm 100% sure he wouldn't be able to remember me. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's where I got to know him, or of him, and then a friend said, hey, this guy we went to school with wrote a book. You should read it. And I'm like, no, if a friend of mine wrote a book, it's going to be horrible. <laughs> wow. And I've been proven wrong several times since then by uh, by Jim Butcher and by other folks. How about the two of you? How did you come across Butcher uh, and or the Dresden Files? Well, I yeah. can't. <laughs> this one is all Ben's fault. Uh, <laughs> Dive in, Ben. Yeah, Ben, go okay. for it. Uh, so I got exposed to it because a couple of my friends were into it and sent me his first couple of books. And... I got Steph into it because, you know, 
apparently that's how we started flirting with each other. I started sending her copies of the books. With, with little sticky, sticky note notes annotations, yes. And those of you listening at home, you can't see it, but Donald looks like he just got a cavity from the sweetness. Also, possibly diabetes. Hmm. No, I was just wondering if there's potential blackmail material there. That's all. I mean, um, we're not really shy. I know hmm. my brother-in-law is borrowing the series and I forgot to take the sticky notes out. So he's like, I love the extra reading material. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you connected over the, over the book. So these have a special meaning for the two of you. Yep. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> thanks Jim. Yes. Well, okay. So what is the Dresden files? Why do we care? Why is it such a thing these days in the, in the world of modern fantasy fiction? Well, it's a first-person urban fantasy detective story where the detective in question happens to be a wizard. Okay, so uh, the first Dresden Files book came out in 2000? April, April 1st, 2000. Wow, okay. And the, so that's like three years after the first Harry Potter. Harry Potter book, which it's weird, though, because I'd think... Most books take more than three years to start, write, and get published and find a publisher for. Well, if I recall correctly, this he started the series almost as a challenge from his writing teacher at the time. And it was actually kind of spite-written. And then it just took off on its own. He originally was going to call it semi-automagic, and it was going to start a completely different character. Harry was just a... B plot in that book. Hmm. Interesting. Um, well, okay. So what, why is Harry Dresden cool or why is the Dresden universe interesting? What are some of the big themes? Well, it's always interesting to see magic and sort of present day stuff mingling. Right, right, right. And I feel like that's, that's most of the fun for me. And it's interesting because I think a lot of the people who, published stuff with magic and modern stuff before the you know late 90s it was like Piers Anthony did the incarnations of immortality series where it was what would happen if civilization was aware of magic and how would that change modern or future whereas that's not at all what happened here this is magic is still hidden and it's still alive and it's got sort of parallel evolution along science which is actually much tougher for me to swallow as a premise. Well, the, the evolution of magic in the series, there are a lot of fan theories about it, like why it turned out the way it is. And butcher himself just loves tweaking everyone's noses about it. But it seems as though human magic in particular evolves over time to isolate the people who can use it. Right. Originally it was like boils on the skin or milk curling around them or candles changing colors and it's now like, it's tech breaking exactly yep like was dresden can't have a cell phone yeah because it'll explode yeah butcher jokes about him having to sadly watch tv from outside a tv shop and just squint at the subtitles <laughs> and look so sad because he's like this nba tall guy in a trench coat with bags under his eyes just watching tv but he knows it's, it's, it's interesting that that's how he's sort of portrayed, but he is so up on so many elements of pop culture, I guess, because a movie theater is big enough. He can go to a theater for a session and not break everything. 
And yeah, and he's also, it's kind of accidental in that Dresden references so much of geek culture, which when the books came out, it was not mainstream. So most of Harry Dresden's early pop culture references, they come from books or comic books, as opposed to things that are now on the big screen. Yeah. Right. Or maybe an X-Files reference or something like that. Yeah. You know, and it, in fact, I remember in the first couple of books he does with great power comes great responsibility the first time without attributing it to Spider-Man. Yeah. And the second time, eventually he, he does attribute it to uncle Ben. Yeah. And yeah. he also name drops the Tau of Parker at one point. Yep. Yep. Well, and my, my favorite, of course, the Tau of Pratchett. Which oh, yeah. he does later. So, yeah. Um, and so what are some of the other themes that we've got going with the whole Dresden files? Or actually, before we do that, how many books are there? 16 published novels and I think two anthologies. And I believe we're up to six or seven comic book series now. I've not read any of the comic books. Are they worth looking at? Uh, most of them, yes. The only one I would give a hard pass on would be Dogmen, which I don't think Butcher himself had too much of a say in the writing of that one. He was on as more of an advisor. Mm. I forget who actually wrote it. So is it bad or does it just feel like it's outside of the Dresden Files series? It's not bad. It just doesn't feel like a Dresden story. It's like in the books, people will drop profanity left and right, but it feels natural. And this is just the first thing that comes to mind for me. But in that particular story, it's like F-bomb every page. Hmm. And it's like they just don't feel like the people you see in the books. It just doesn't feel like the Dresden verse. Yeah. yeah. That's fair. And we just had an anthology. And so now it's all wrapped up, right? No more Dresden Files books? Oh, God, no. There's there's still, I think, at least three more and then a big apocalyptic trilogy because you got to have a big apocalyptic trilogy. Right. But he's writing these on a, shall we car, call it a George Martonian scale? Arguably. Arguably. He used to come out with a book every year, even when they started getting really long. But then... Right around changes or a ghost story, he started slowing down more, in part because he's got other projects he's working on. He's like, I've got enough money, I get to do what I want. That he actually said as much in a recent uh, Q&A. He said something to the effect of, when I was new, they would tell me to pare things down and try to keep it around 50,000 words. Now that I'm out there, they just ask when it's done. Hmm. Hmm. Living the dream. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I really think, and we, I haven't encountered it too much at all with a uh, butcher stuff yet, but some authors really benefit from a, a stern handed editor. They do. I would say he does pretty well without a stern handed editor, but you never know. Maybe he still has one and they just keep it on the down low. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for him. I think you know the quality is still mostly high, except for when he's submitting short stories for other people and he forgot to write them ahead of time. Um, <laughs> oh, wow! And we all we've all had the encounter with deadlines. I'm not, you know, I'm not picking on him for this. I've I've let stuff slip until the last minute before. <laughs> Quit looking at me, Stephanie. All right, um, but uh, so uh, some of the other themes: family. Family is a huge theme. Oh, it yeah. really is. Especially towards, like, the back half of stuff. 
Well, yeah, for the first half of the series, family is non-existent as a as a theme, except for him fleeing from his fairy godmother. Yeah. It does start I, really... I feel like it starts really honing in on that theme, though, once Michael enters the equation. Oh, yeah. Like, it takes center stage, I think, around proven guilty. Yeah. Which is about book what? That, I think, is book nine or so, and it's mainly concerned with Michael's daughter, Molly. Right, 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 right. And I think that, yeah, up until then, they they hint at family, and even with that, it feels like family is sort of somebody else's theme, and it's not Harry's theme yet. Yeah. But he, like all things, he adopts stuff and makes it his own yeah. so much. So what is Harry? Tell, Give us a little more about Harry. Why should our listeners care about Harry, the wizard detective? He is a grade A smart aleck who stares down Cthulhu and cracks jokes at him. Yeah. Followed by needing a really stiff drink at a pub and then a good session of just sitting alone in the dark, staring at a wall, trying not to freak out. He's very weirdly relatable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of a jerk. He kind of is. But he's kind of our kind of jerk. Exactly. Yeah. He's the kind of jerk that's fun to watch. Yeah. You're like, don't do it, but I know you're going to do it. That's a way better way of putting it. Well, and it, and it sort of feels like you know when he's on that arc. It's not like he's ever arbitrarily like, I don't understand why he's doing that. And yeah. a big part of that has got to be the first person nature of the of the narrative. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a hallmark of detective fiction in general. The detective is often a smart aleck, and he's often a bit of a jerk, but as you said, he's our kind of jerk. Well, and I feel like part of that, too, is that he's dealing with stuff that's usually so out of his depth that, kind of like John Taylor, he's got to have this big um, sort of intimidating reputation. And that's sort of its own weapon. Okay. You mentioned someone from another series by another author, so you need to explain that to our listeners. Okay. Um, John Taylor's from the Nightside series, uh, and he's also a detective. Also a magic detective. Yeah. We do kind of love magic detectives. Yeah. And so he's like in his whole weird space with other weird magic stuff that's completely over his head, but he sort of smart Alex at it so that he's got a reputation. Right. Though it felt like in the Simon R. Green, he had less of a, a formula for the way magic was happening. Right. And more of a, Hey, I'm doing a free form magic. Yeah. Magic's way more sporadic in, I feel like the night side. Simon R. Green, he approaches magic less as a defined system and more as a plot convenience and or a joke convenience. Whatever works for the scene, that's what he's going to do, and he'll justify it after the fact, and then he doesn't care. Right. And that's part of those books' charm for me. Just saying. No, well, that's cool, but that's a different episode. Yeah. I've only I've only listened to one of those, so... Fine, fine. But Let's maybe we to should totally them. talk about that, actually. Magic being formulaic and sort of defined in this. Right. Um... Because sure. I, I feel like that actually adds to some of the detective-ishness. It, it does, yes. You kind of know some of the rules already, so you're kind of keeping an eye out for things as they happen. And speaking of rules, the Dresden Files do make a really 
big point of the seven laws of magic. The biggest of which is thou shall not kill with magic, and guess which one Dresden broke before the series? Yes. Um, well, okay, so let's talk a, l- a little bit more about the magic. The, the rules of magic have nothing to do with how magic works. Yeah. It has, it's basically how the bureaucracy is going to enforce infractions against, against magic. Um, because, well, that's a whole different, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Well, it it does actually seem like the rules of magic do have something to do with the way magic works because there's kind of a whole bunch of suggestion that if you break the rules of magic, it sort of almost taints you and stains you and that kind of thing. Good point. That's one of the reasons that, okay, are we, we're going into spoilers here. Oh yeah. Dresden files. There's going to be a boatload of spoilers. Enjoy them. Yes. Thank you. So that's actually one of the reasons why an artifact introduced later in called the Black Staff is so powerful. It allows the wizard wielding it to willy-nilly use the darkest magic you can come up with and not really be corrupted by it. Where do they explain the lore on that? Most of it is very much implied. That's a lot of read between the lines. Yeah. Like there's a scene where... The current black staff, Ebenezer, literally kills something like a hundred people with a wave of his staff. And Harry sees his arm holding the staff just turn pitch black and then the color gets sucked into the staff. And that right there shows you what you've been previously told earlier on in the series that it can do that. And that it allows a wizard to break the laws and just get away with it. Well, yeah, but by the same note, Nate, by the same point, Ebenezer drops a satellite on a town. That's true. And that's not going to have a direct magical impact on him because his, his magical action was, I'm going to nudge this satellite. All right. I'm going to nudge the orbit of this thing. And then when there's a smoking crater there, that's not directly tied to him. So I really thought that the black staff as an office was more of a, you've proven that you can do some stuff and not actually turn evil. So you're going to be able to, to hold this office. It might or might not have started that way. We don't know for sure. The running fan theory is that Ebenezer's staff actually used to belong to one of the queen mothers of the fairy courts, which we should probably talk about the fairy courts. We should. And actually, uh, one of the things that you listed in our, hey, here's the cool themes, is the reworking of ancient mythology in sort of a modern context, which is one of the elements that I really liked uh, about the Dresden Files. And is so much as, hey, we're now getting into the period where we're retelling all of our favorite superhero stories, which is the modern mythology. And in the Dresden Files, it's taking sort of the Arthurian tales and having their way with it, fairy, etc. So what about the fairy courts? So there are two of them in the books, summer and winter. There's more than that, actually. Well, there is also the wild fae and the Welsh, the Welsh fairy court as well. And That's aren't true. the goblins a different court entirely? I thought they were wealthy. Arguably, oh, like a lot of the other, what we would consider to be fairies, they count as more wild fae. Like it's, It's basically Jedi and Sith. Yeah, there are plenty of other Force users around there, but they basically fall on the same light side, dark side spectrum. 
light side being a very relative term when you're dealing with fairies. That said, the winter court is headed by Mab, and you don't want to mess with Mab. Right. Man, and there are some deep spoilers later in the series. Oh, yeah. That... Okay, so the power... Are we going there? I don't I don't know if we should. Um <laughs> Okay. I think that that's a there are some let's just say that there are some deep secrets around the character that obviously Okay, I can't say obviously, but it felt like Butcher all of a sudden came up with the I need to justify some stuff and I need to put some other you know, put some other stuff together and that that's why all of a sudden it all makes sense now. It's like the same way I run a role-playing game. I'm like, oh, we've got all these elements. Let's see what we can tie them together and make it happen. But on the other hand, he had a 15, 20, 30 book series planned at one point. Yeah. So who knows how much he actually. I, I actually attended a talk by him in about 2013. And he said that whenever he starts a book, he's basically got the stuff he wants to blow up. And then he doesn't worry too much about how he connects those scenes, which makes perfect sense. Well, it allows him to change the world. And I think that that's one of the coolest things about the Dresden Files is that uh, particularly after the Red Court shenanigans, the world's completely different. Oh, right? yeah. I it mean, is. The power structures have changed. And in so many things, you get, hey, here's books, here's books, and nothing really changes. Yeah. But you certainly feel that stuff changes over time in the Dresden Files. You also get the sense that the world is bigger than Harry. Like uh, during the Red Court War arc, there's actually a complete separate arc that plays out in the background involving some kind of Rakshasa priest person in India that's taking up like half of the White Council's manpower to deal with. And we only ever barely hear about it. Right. But that's he lifted that kind of stuff straight from Tolkien. He did, but the fact is the world is still bigger than the protagonist. Yes, but you uh, but you get that feeling from a lot of different ways. Fair. I mean, that is certainly one, one aspect. That's one way to sort of seed that in. But the here's what happened to him beforehand. He still has to deal with the people who are more powerful than him. Um, he does a great job at sort of set dressing, at sort of set dressing all of those, all of those elements. Um, and, you know, it never hurts to borrow from people who have done it you know, and our best-selling authors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So true. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, so the fairy, uh, you've got the queens, and those are sort of built on the old trope, the um, um, the maiden, the mother, and the crone. Um, or the other one, as Pratchett would say. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> yes. Um, and that becomes disturbingly relevant in one of your least like short stories. Yeah, we're not going into that one. All right, we'll do that maybe in a few years. All right. Um, <laughs> After I've had time to simmer. But, um, and so they each have their different sort of levels of power and they have a different realization of how they can interact with mortal mortals and stuff. But we also have mantles. Yes. And what are mantles? You want the honors or shall I? Um, sure. They're basically titles that carry power with them and but they have like certain rules and if you break the rules then you'll pretty much lose that mantle i think dresden basically finds that out the hard way at one point several times yeah. because that's how he learns everything 
Right, right, right. So, um, trial and error. <laughs> what yes. would possibly uh, go wrong? And it's like every office or every everything that's not innate to the person that they get is a mantle of sorts. Yeah. Um, and you know, they, he encounters a guy who he was friends with earlier, who becomes a knight, a summer knight, and they were all they were you know as friendly as friendly can be. And then after the guys, the summer night, he's like, yeah, if you come at me again like that, you'd better kill me or, or it's going to be bad, bad words. Yeah. So they basically go from shaking hands at the end of one book to the guy shoving a double barreled shotgun up his nose in the next meeting. And, and, and that's, that's be- yeah, that's because with your mantle comes suspicion and power and obligation and all of these things. And it also shapes your personality like a lot. If you if you let it, right? If you let if, it, if you, if you don't know how to fight it, it certainly does. Right. So, um, well, what do we want to talk about next? Um, we can start the characters, or we can talk factions. I mean, we've talked a little bit about the factions with uh, the courts of Fae. right? Oh well, okay. So let's go back to book one. They introduce a guy who you assume, or at least I did when I first read the first book they're like oh this is a one-shot bad guy that we're never going to see again (laughs) and he just won't die or go away and we all love him for it and it's gentleman johnny marcone oh yeah (laughs) was that who you were thinking that's who i was thinking okay um so tell us a bit about gentleman johnny marcone so marcone is a lot of things but in book one at least he is our introduction to things like soul gazing the criminal underworld of Chicago, the intersection between that underworld and magic. As the series goes on, he actually becomes a just huge power player. He becomes the very first mortal to ever become a supernatural power unto himself. And he's also really good at throwing knives. I feel like that's going to come up again later, but it hasn't yet. He was also the very first character other than Dresden himself to get his own short story. You can tell it was the first one because most of that story, he's defining himself against Harry. Right. Which none of the others do that. And I think that his is a character that has, of course, evolved a lot over time. And it feels like some of how he behaved when he first started is very inconsistent with the kind of guy that he is now. Yeah. Um, is, but, it, is it even hand? I believe so. Okay. Um, but uh, And of course, Marcone surrounds himself with a variety of other characters. At one point, it's Valkyries, right? It, it's, it's always a Valkyrie. It is always. Well, it is eventually a Valkyrie. Originally, it's a big dude. Well, yeah. the big dude sticks around the whole way through, and he's actually getting his, I think, bachelor's in philosophy? No, it's a master's degree in Something philosophy. Something like that, yeah. And it's like, he plays dumb muscle and you don't even find out he's a philosophy major until that short story. Hmm. That's funny. And then you find out about the Valkyrie, I think, in small favor. Right. She also becomes a major player in another short story where she takes out a Grindle, which is pretty awesome. And these this whole pantheon of Marcone's group is interesting because they're not always just plain stereotypes and they seem to be and they're heading in that direction. And then you learn a little bit more about them. And 
they really become more interesting over time. It's like I was ready to be done with him after the first book. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, okay. More and more so, he's more interested. Like, all right, is he coming into this book? Is he going to be a part of this? And eventually, he becomes a big player in, well, a small player in a bigger field, I guess. That's one way of putting it. And it's fascinating because in his rise, you can see how mortals stack up to the supernatural in this world because the supernatural is always afraid of mortals. And then you see Marcone's people in action and it's perfectly justified. They do their homework. They don't play it by halves. They come in bearing overwhelming firepower. They go for the food sources of supernatural creatures Anytime they get into a confrontation, they're there to win, basically. Right. And, well, speaking of food sources of supernatural creatures, you can't talk food sources without talking vampires. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, And uh, so, whereas we had two kinds of fairy, or three-ish kinds of fairy, um, we got uh, three kinds of vampires that we learn about, and there's a fourth one that we don't really learn about. And Butcher himself has implied that there are others, but we've never seen a clue of them in the actual text. Which is fine, because Harry's not everywhere. Yeah. So, give us an overview of vampires. All right, so we got three kinds, or many kinds. All right, we got Blackcourt, which is basically your classic... Bram Stoker, Dracula, weak to garlic. It's more like the... Blackcourt's like the Nosferatu, right? It's the Mm -hmm. twisted, the darker, the... They're the zombie vampires. The more, okay. They're the more depraved, the more hideous looking. Yeah, but they're still weak to all the stuff that. Oh well, yeah, no. Yeah, yes, yeah. They have all the weaknesses of the bronze. Right, which is why they're sort of in decline because everybody knows what their weaknesses are. Um, And then you've got the red court, which are the ones that sort of rage out into those crazy sort of bat forms. Mm-hmm. They're basically giant werebats. And they also have the, some of the standard weaknesses. They do. They're vulnerable to sunlight and holy objects. Yes. Um, and then you've got the white court vampires, which are a lot more like succubi. They are. Yeah. They feed off of emotions and usually lust. And they do damage to the spirit or the soul or the essence of the person that they're feeding off of instead of doing physical damage by draining their blood. Right. Yeah. Um, but it can still be just as fatal. Oh, yeah. Um, but you just don't mind quite so much. <laughs> um, but the red vampires have uh, uh, the venom. Yes, narcotic spit, Harry calls it several times. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they are a main theme through part well through big chunks of of several of the books oh yeah yeah from they're introduced as a threat right in the very first book which sets up their ultimate conflict and they become a main stage threat for most of the first half of the series they're there with you right up until changes yep and uh and then even when they finally go away that power vacuum causes a lot more problems it does it does um and the white court seems nice by comparison but 
They're the kind of slow, calculating evil that just takes its sweet time with killing you. And you're not going to mind it so much, as you said. Unless it's one of the ones who don't just feed on emotions, but who also feed on fear or, you know, panic and all that. So Yeah, the ones we've been introduced in the books feed on lust, fear, and despair. In the RPG, if I recall correctly, there's also one that's implied to feed on anger, but that's unconfirmed. And that seems like a dangerous way to feed. That I'm, does. I'm just saying, we're going to upset you. <laughs> I mean. It's like all the internet trolls are hate, hate <laughs> eating vampires. That's yeah. actually what I was just thinking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this day and age, I'm sure those particular vampires are just, they're well off. So if we go from vampires, we obviously have to talk werewolves. Yes, you get to see just about every single kind of werewolf, which is weird because you only see them really in one book. Right. And and I I thought that was kind of neat is in a lot of role playing games and stuff. And Butcher has a history with role playing games. World of Darkness. uh, That um, that he sort of tackled. He's like, all right, we're just going to get this werewolf nonsense out of the way. um, And we're going to talk about those who are forced to change those who are cursed to change those. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You get to see, like you said, the ones who are cursed to change, which is the classic wolf man type werewolf, which he does really well. Mm. Loop guru. Yeah. Loop guru. And you get to see that thing go on a rampage in a drunk tank. At one point, it's one of the most viscerally terrifying moments in the series. It, it reminds, reminded me of the, police station massacre in the terminator movie oh yeah i think that's what he was drawing on just bloodier yeah and you also get to see the hexen wolves which are basically without telling you the kinds of people they are they use cursed werewolf belts or pelts Mm -hmm. that allow them to transform into giant wolves then you've got the alphas who are basically a bunch of D&D nerds who have one magic trick which is to turn into were- to turn into wolves. And, and it's weird cuz you'd think that they would be able to have something else magic wise, but that's what they do. Yeah. That's all they went for. And and that's it. And then there's one other kind of werewolf which is a wolf were for want of a better thing to call it. Right. A wolf that turns into a person. The reverse of it, yeah. So um, it's neat to have sort of all that tied up in a bow, and it's like we can refer back to it, and it's one of those things that he he does from time to time. Uh, and it set up a lot of the relationship between Harry and the police force, and it's like even the ones who think he's fake will sort of tolerate him, um, except for when they really can't. And it gives it gives him a whole lot of. Some people are going to restrict your movement more, but others are going to give you a lot more leeway and you've built up some relationships for saving people's lives and that kind of stuff. So it it did a whole lot in what was not the best book in the series. It did. And honestly, Butcher himself considers it the weakest book in the series. Me, I think it's kind of one of the most underrated. Well, I think it does a lot of work without necessarily being the most artfully done. Yes, that I'll agree with. Because you get to meet Harry's inner self, which becomes a major plot point several times in the series afterwards. Mm. 
you get your introduction to the alphas. You get the real beginnings or, I guess, intensification of his romantic relationship with Susan. You get to see him have his first alliance with Marcone. You get to see him and Murphy just kind of bury the hatchet that first time. A lot happens. After she nearly killed, she's just ready to kill him at one point in the book. Oh, she's yeah. She's just so angry at him. She but, she yeah. almost kills him, and she does chip his tooth, which gets called back once or twice. Murphy a- is tiny but fierce. Mm-hmm. He is. Um, hmm. Where to next? All right. So we got vampires. We got werewolves. And we got basically demons. Yeah, fallen angels. Fallen angels. Close enough. Yeah. Uh, So fallen angels inside of these little coins. um, And they basically, they're the denarians. And they bestow powers to whoever's got their coin. Um, You've got. The big one is Nicodemus. Nicodemus. That's right. What's his daughter's name? Uh, Deirdre? Deirdre. Deirdre, yeah. Um, And so there's like... Along with Tessa, his wife. Tessa's so cool. Tessa is cool. Okay. Uh, But anyway, they've got varying powers from like Nicodemus, who has a moving shadow. um, And a fancy tie. And a fancy tie. Yes. The Judas noose. That basically makes him immortal. Ish. Give or take using it to kill him. <laughs> Which Harry does try really well at one point. Oh, that was such a good moment. <laughs> Just the like, ah, oh, you're invulnerable to everything else. What about the noose? Uh, then you got Dietri who's got like... Razor hair. Yes, razor hair. Along with every other part of her. And Tessa who basically turns into a giant bug. Along with... A horde of smaller bugs. And then a whole other assortment of fallen angel powers. And at one point, Dresden's even got one. Yeah, he picks up the coin of Lachiel, the seductress. And Harry being Harry, he winds up converting her shadow into an ally. And it's a long story. Oh, I miss her. I miss her so much. She was great. She was one of my favorites. But so anyway, uh, there's basically two agendas within the the order of the Black and Denarius. I guess there's really the order, and then there's the other people who have the coins. And Nicodemus is sort of focusing them all to do mass Holocaust devastation, Nicodemus is all about the long game, whereas Tessa's faction is all, is all chaos. just... Blow it up now. Yeah. Um, and so you have these folks, each of whom transform at different times because they look human most of the time, except for when they don't want to. Right up until the second set of eyes opens up. Yep. And then um, and then I guess they don't define them as fallen angels, or they, they are specifically fallen angels? They or? are explicitly fallen angels, and they're bound into the 30 pieces of silver that Judas got for selling out Jesus. Yep. Which, the process of sealing them in there burned the coins and therefore blackened them. Thus, the order of the blackened denarius. Actually, silver blackens by itself. 
I'm just quoting the books here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least mm-hmm. I think I'm quoting the books. Um, well, anyway, so again, to offset these 30 coins of, uh, of darkness and devastation, you have uh, three knights of the cross to, uh, to fight them. My brain is just going. <laughs> this, was who, this was who you wanted to talk about. It was, but you made me talk about the Daenerys. Okay. Um, but anyway, so this is another cosmic thing. And the neat thing about this is you've got Harry and the White Council who haven't talked about doing one kind of thing. And then you have it like it feel like this is one of those things that, Ben, you were talking about earlier, expands the universe yeah. because it's like, oh, wait, there's a whole other element. But yes, it makes sense. And... Uh, tell us about the knights. All right. So you've got the Knights of the Cross. Um, and they have these swords that it's got the nails of the cross in the pommels, right? More or less. Or am I making this up? They are, the, the nails of the cross are part of the sword. I believe they are part of the pommel, but it could just have been incorporated into the metal. I think I just always imagine them in the pommel. Sure. We'll go with that. All right. Um, and so they fight the Denarians. Um, and that seems like it's always sort of a battle just kind of happening off to the side until Harry gets dragged in because, you know, it they're threatening Chicago. Yeah, he, he runs into a Russian bear in an alley and, you know, it just happens. Yeah. Mm. One day you meet a bear in an alley. The next one you're fighting a fallen angel man on top of a train. Yes. And so that's all pretty cool. The... However, the Knights of the Cross are not the kinds of folks you would normally expect them to be. Um, the first one that you want to talk about is... Michael Carpenter. Well, he is kind of exactly what you'd expect him to be. Right. It's He's all the of only the other one. ones. <laughs> Special shout out to Sonya. Yes. Right. Sweet, sweet Sonya. All right. So Michael is like family man, Catholic. He's like just... He's got like seven kids. Seven kids, wife named Charity. Like, he is the platonic knight of the cross that you would expect, basically. Yes. But then you've also got Shiro. Who is an accidental Baptist who was just trying to meet Elvis. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And then you've got Sonya. Who is an atheist from Russia and is just a gem. We all love him. We do. And then over the course of the series, um, swords get passed around. Swords get passed around. um, And technically you've got Murphy for a hot minute. Yeah. And then she's like, no, no, not for me. Yes. And then you've also arguably got Harry for like a split second at the end of small favor. Mm. Arguably. Mm. And then we get the true heir to that sword. Oh, butters. Yeah, you've got a Jewish Jedi Knight of the Cross, who, by the way, is also Batman. Uh, Batman, right. Yes. Uh, So, as you can see, uh, they're playing towards type with Carpenter, and they're playing against type with everyone Everyone else. else. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which is nice, right? I mean, you know, he's like, oh, we're not going to completely ignore the, what we would consider the traditions, um, but because... uh, in this universe, God is bigger than. Yeah. And it's interesting. Over the course of the series, you find out that each of the swords, I mean, obviously Michael's sword, I believe its name is Amarachius, it's Excalibur. Mm-hmm. But then you find out the other two are also mythical swords. One of them is, I believe, Kusanagi from Japanese lore. 
And another one, Sonya's... Blanking on it, it was Saladin's sword. Mm. Blanking on the name of it at the moment. I forget, did we ever find out what happened to the fourth one? The fourth one so far does not exist near as we know. Oh, like, okay. We've never been told there is a fourth one. It's Why mostly would there be four. There are four angels, and there's often speculation that Jesus had four nails. Because three wouldn't have held his body up. Yeah. Two feet, two hands. One through both feet. Eh? <laughs> Plus, there's also the speculation that one of the swords was either destroyed, and there was a really good fan theory on Reddit about it being used to help build Demon Reach. I That sounds like a dumb theory. I'm going to go with that. Um, <laughs> I mean... But I will say that, uh, that we do know that each of the swords has its own frailty, and yes. so if you do the wrong thing with a given sword, it will unmake the sword. Yes, which Murphy finds out the hard way. And Dresden found out the hard way. Yeah. Which, it didn't unmake it, it made it vulnerable. It did. Murphy's the one who really tried just going against a sword's nature on the spot, and then it broke. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, lots of rich, rich building there of characters. And... You're like, oh, why can't so-and-so be a, a, a Knight of the Sword? Because you're thinking, these other people in the series would also fit. At one point, one of the Red Court vampires touches it, touches one of the swords. And just explodes into flame. And, um, uh, well, Susan touches one once. Yeah. But she's not Red Court. Oh, I guess we should, when we were talking about vampires, we forgot about a whole group of people to talk about. Oh, we did. Really, we forgot about two, because there's also the Jade Court. Um, yes, but we don't know anything about them. We don't, All and right. that's kind of the whole point of them. And uh, But uh, there's the uh, Fellowship of St. Giles. Yes, so they are an order of people who have all been infected by the Red Court, but they haven't been converted into vampires just yet. Because they haven't made their kill. Exactly, and they all keep it in check using magical tattoos. And they're kind of like a semi-mortal proxy in the war against the Red Court. Speaking of people involved <laughs> in shenanigans going on, um, uh, I guess we probably should hit the White Council, the Great Council, and other. Yeah. All right. So yeah. you got these wizards. You have the laws of magic. The laws of magic were sort of handed down by the Merlin, yes. we think, um, who was the head first head of the White Council. And white does not mean they are good guys. No, they are very much not good guys all the time they're the nominal good guys they are the here the lines you're not going to cross guys yes and uh so a little more about them so the white council in as much as we know it was formed i believe in babylon and they've moved around all over europe ever since they're basically the top organization for human magic users they number a couple thousand, they fight wars, and if you step out of line, their police officers, whether you're a member of the White Council or not, will find you, and they will chop your head off, and that's that. The Wardens. Yes. Who you're first introduced to in the cheery form of Donald Morgan. Ah, Morgan. Yeah. yeah. A more understood character there never was. 
Hmm? A more understood character there never was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Morgan was... So Morgan is introduced in book one as a antagonistic character to Dresden. And he stays that way for his entire life. He does. <laughs> Even when he's saying he's sorry, he's still antagonistic. <laughs> Even when he's helping Dresden or when he's being helped by Dresden, he is still an unholy pain. He is, but he does have the funniest moment that never appears on screen. So in Deadbeat, several characters are incapacitated and Harry and another warden have to ride a zombie T-Rex that's animated using a polka suit. Mm. Guess who had to man the polka suit? One man band. Polka will never die. It really won't. So Butters. Yeah, Butters is our, hey, character who was elevated from uh, the obscurity of the morgue to become a, a sort of a keystone character in the late series. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, Butters is especially funny because Butcher didn't actually plan out his arc. Oh, really? Butters just kind of developed from a few throwaway lines in his first book and eventually became a Knight of the Cross. I love Butters' arc. Just the throwaway yeah. character, sidekick, Knight of the Cross. And somewhere in between also replacement Batman. Yes, replacement Batman. Protecting the streets while Justin's away. Yeah. Not knowing exactly what he's holding on to. Good old Bob. Um, all right. Well, so you, you got the, the White Council, and then we have the Black Council. Yes. And the Black Council is fascinating because, near as we know, they are entirely speculative on Harry's part. Their backer of sorts is revealed way late in the series, but the organization itself, they might not even be an actual organization. That's just Harry's name for them. Well, but there is, there's a lot of, of circumstantial evidence with, with their scribe is. or the, uh, their, what do we call them? The, um, bureaucrat, um, yeah. Oh, is, yeah. is pretty much proof, you know, yeah. it's, and there's others that, that sort of say, Hey, there is a bigger thing going on. There is. And it's kind of like a real world terrorist network where you have all these nodes in a system, but you don't necessarily know how the network itself is put up or is set up, I should say. Right. And then you've got the Gray Council, which is Harry and Ebenezer's response to the Black Council. Right. They are basically a small secret group numbering maybe four people that we absolutely know of inside the white council trying to counteract the black council. Well, there were more than that who showed up at Chichenisa, right? There absolutely were, but I'm just talking about within the white council itself. Oh, we know the names of, yeah. 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 Like uh, the actual gray council, we think numbers at least as many as nine people, I believe. Yep. Including engine Joe. Yeah. Ooh, I actually forgot about him. I wasn't counting him. So, yeah. Right. So, yeah. Oh, Although sorry, they're Native American Joe. He calls himself Engine Joe. We'll just go with that for now. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting character on for many reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Butcher plays very. 
He plays a lot with both archetypes and stereotypes, and he likes subverting all of them. Joe himself gets one of the most badness moments in the series in, I believe, Turncoat. Uh, the, when, during the, the duel of shapeshifting? Yes. Yeah. Um, and he also, he has a perspective that so many of the other wizards don't have, and he has a story that a lot of them don't understand because he was here in the United States uh, before it was the United States as it was being taken over. Um, yeah. And, you know, so he's sort of, you're like, oh, is he going to end up being the traitor who, or the, the person who pushes down the white council and, and scatters the stones, or is he going to be the person who makes it sort of live to a higher standard at the end? You don't know where he's going to be. Yeah. And we still don't at this point. We still don't. And you can also say the same for Martha Liberty. She, to my knowledge is the only member of the white council who is a full blown American citizen. And yeah, she was born during the era of slavery. So She's got her own baggage. We just don't know what it is yet. Right. But whenever I hear the words Martha Liberty, I think of the tick. I could see that. But uh, yeah. Anyway, so um, yeah, the, but it's neat because you bring in the characters. You've got this Ebenezer who's a Scots, right? Um, yeah. And so many, from some, so many people from diff- different elements. It's like they have to talk in Latin when they're at the meetings because that's the language that they all have in common except for apparently Harry <laughs> who barely can speak Latin. Darn correspondence courses. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ebenezer should have taught him a little more Latin, I think. You would think. Um, he had farm chores to do. <laughs> he did. He did. <laughs> uh, well, so as long as we're talking, you know, Harry's family, let's talk about some of his other characters or did we did we really need to get to the paranet and uh we'll, we'll deal with that that in a bit that's quick basically harry helps set up a group of people who aren't real heavy lifters in magic yeah they're basically borderline magic users kitchen witches mm-hmm. maybe that one guy down the road who knows a single trick and can still use a computer right they, they call it the Paranet, and it's basically just an attempt to create an immune system for mortals that is not reliant on the White Council. Which becomes particularly important when uh, most of the Wardens die. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Paranet does a lot of the heavy lifting after the Wardens get decimated. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, one place I want to mention is McNally's Pub. Yeah, McAnally, I think. Is it? Yeah, McAnally. I'm sorry, McAnally's Pub. Yep. <sighs> Good old Mac. Yeah, so McAnally's Pub is a setup where people can meet and spells have a tough time taking place because of the architecture and the organization, and he serves really good beer and steak sandwiches, which is kind of the place I want in my life. Don't we all? Yes. Neutral his, accorded ground. Yes, his place is basically like... A miniature Switzerland where you can have a beer and get a steak sandwich that's cooked over a fire stove. And it's sounds lovely, really. You guys are making me hungry. I know. I just ate and I'm hungry again now. Yeah, but you ate McDonald's. So, of course, you're still hungry in your soul, at least. Um, It's true. I feel so unfulfilled. So, at McAnally's Pub, um, it became accorded neutral territory 
uh, or neutral ground. And what that is, is what is what are the Accords? The Accords are something that the Queen of Winter, her name is Mab, set up after a certain incident in the 1990s, which gets mentioned once in book one and never gets a name drop again. It's basically where the fairies disappeared the city of Minneapolis or something like that for two hours, then put it back. And then Mab was like, yep, we're not doing that again. Slaps down the accords and then enforces it with just an iron will. And well, it sounded like there was more people who sort of said, this is a thing that needs to happen. Did she, was it a unilateral thing or was it? It might have been the case where a lot of people wanted something like that, and Mab was just the first rules lawyer to come up with something. Mm. There were a lot of pre-existing legal codes among each supernatural nation and a lot of implicit codes of conduct between them, but Mab is the one who actually wrote it down, and Mab is the one who will come after you if you break things. And... I don't know that we necessarily need to explain why, but she has the power to do so. Oh, she will mess you up. Yep. Um, but yeah. And so that is why uh, we talked about him earlier. Gentleman, Johnny Marcone, he has signed on to the accords. He is the first mortal power because wizards aren't considered mortals though. They are. Yeah. They're, they're just a extreme, kind of mortal, extremely long lived, but they have magic powers. Uh, the first stronghold for mortals, but it's like, the red court was a signatory to the accords, the white court, the black court, et cetera, et cetera. It sets up the rules for, Hey, you killed one of my dudes. You owe me where guild or whatever it is for, for having messed up one of my mm-hmm. whatever's. Um, and it's sort of a rules of engagement that everyone breaks. Yeah. With well, obscene regularity, but only by so much. Yeah. It's the case where if you can come up with a justification for breaking the rules, There is no spirit governing them. It is down to the letter. So technicalities. Yes. You can kill someone with technicalities and get away with it. That's what the Fae do. That is. They don't lie, but man, you're never getting the truth out of them. Yeah. Um, And uh, that's most of the big groups. I mean, you know, there's other, you know, enclaves of bad guys and stuff that we can talk about, but, um, that's the big bunch, the ones you need to get started. The important thing is, is that one of my favorite characters doesn't actually get into the series until way too late. Which one? Mouse. Mouse. Mouse has one of the best introductions in the entire series. And mouse is not a mouse or even a person though. He's more real than many people. He really is. He's doggo. He's a woolly chamath. He is a woolly chamath. Dude, I love the end of that book where uh, Dresden's just like, why did you buy large dog food? Yes. yes. Mouse, for reference, is introduced as one of, I think, eight puppies in a box that Dresden is carrying out of a burning building while being chased by demon apes flinging fiery poo at him. Yes. The opening of that book, Butcher has said that he wants to start a movie with it. The building was on fire and it wasn't my fault. Mm. <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know about the series in one sentence. Pretty much. Uh, and so he starts off between he and Mr. They are sort of uh, Dresden's family before he 
develops any personal connections because at the beginning of the whole series, Dresden is people averse Mm -hmm. because he's been haunted by the council or haunted by the council and hated by the, the police, the wizarding police, the, um, he the wardens. Yes. And hunted by his God, godmother. Uh, yes. Hunted by his godmother because she's trying to keep him safe, but he doesn't understand that. And it's not the way you'd want to be kept safe. Nope. Um, and so he just, he's, he's very isolated. And so he has Mr. Who is his, his cat. cat. It's a big old cat. Missing Man. a chunk of his tail. Yeah. But he's such a cute cat. Um, who, you know, shoulder blocks people as he's coming up to them, knocking them potentially off their feet if they're not ready for it. Um, and then he eventually gets a mouse who's... An even bigger dog. <laughs> an even bigger dog. Who respects tradition, though, because he started off with Mr. knocking over his food before he could eat it, and that just stayed the case right up until Dresden's house burned down. Mm. Not Dresden's fault. Not Dresden's fault at all. Um, and then who are the other people who surround Dresden that we care about? We got Murphy. Oh, Murphy. So what's a Murphy? Uh, Karen Murphy, formerly the chief of special investigations for the Chicago PD. Then she basically becomes the sort of supernatural cases person for Chicago. She basically becomes her own version of Dresden by leaving the PD and becoming like the founding leader of, I think they nickname it the Chicago Justice League, which is hysterical because Butcher is more of a Marvel guy, but eh. (laughs) Um, Oh, by the way, we're 16 books in and I still haven't gotten my Murphy's Law joke. I'm dying here, y'all. It goes unsaid. No, I need it to be explicit. I was figuring for an explicit kind of guy. (sighs) (laughs) Um, yeah, other folks, Dresden's, uh, you know, Susan, Susan. Okay. So Susan is, or was, she was, she started out as a reporter for something called the daily arcane. If I remember right, then she made a couple bad choices in life and kind of got half vamped. Long Mm. story. Poor choices. So many poor choices. And then there's uh, the Alphas, who basically become his D&D group. Oh, yeah. Although I hear they're partial to fate. I, I believe so. <laughs> they are now. Fate <laughs> wasn't really a thing back when this started. That's true. Although they call it, quotation marks, Arcanos or something like that. It sounds mm. about right. Yeah, it was. There's his, I guess we may as well mention it. What about Bob. Oh, yeah, Bob, of course. Bob is a fascinating pervert of a spirit that lives inside of a skull. He was put in there by a French enchanter in the Middle Ages. Kemler? And, hmm? Kemler? Uh, no, that's a later oh, person. He, right. he was put in there by, I believe, Etienne the Enchanter or something like that. Okay. And he lives on romance novels right up until... You know, Butters hooks him up to the internet, and now he's never coming back. And so the thing about, uh, you know, Mouse and uh, Bob and so many of those other characters is that in the traditional, you know, detective story, they have the same characters that they go back and they hit and they repeat and wash, rinse, repeat. Um, And 
Bob is sort of the is he the advisor spirit in this in this particular case. But yeah. you, if you don't get your Bob moment in every book, you sort of feel like, hey, I have missed out a big chunk of what's going. You know, like this is an incomplete yeah. book. It doesn't have Bob. It didn't have Malice. It doesn't have Murphy. You go, something is wrong with this book. Yeah. yeah. And I think he actually does show up in every single book. Because I... As he should. Mm-hmm. He should. <laughs> Bob is... So he was buried in fairy for a while, so... He was. He was. Bob is basically Harry's replacement mentor slash personal advisor slash funny sidekick slash demented uncle. He's a great character. He wears a lot of knot hats. He does. And occasionally he goes for rides by possessing Mr. The cat. Oh yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Lord only knows what he gets up to on those nights. Yeah. So there's a lot here. Um, what are some of your favorite moments from the Dresden Files? How spoilery can we get here? Um, we have a list. I'm comfortable with just about everything on the list. All right. I mean, you can't go wrong with that building up being on fire, but you also can't go wrong with Sue. Just Sue. Sue, Sue is amazing. Fun fact. Butcher actually planned the Sue scenes out something like six books in advance (laughs) but never got to write them until deadbeat and in fact he he didn't know the butters was going to be integral to that scene until he was trying to figure out he filled the hole with butters and then he rewrote big chunks of it so um sue is the t-rex from the chicago museum of natural history yeah um, who also has a lovely Twitter account, I wonder, should just say. One of the oh, best yeah. Twitter accounts on the internet. <laughs> um, and it was particularly exciting. And it, it it didn't make a lot of sense, but it was really well done. It was one of those things where it's like, you don't necessarily want it to make too much sense. Like, don't overthink it. Yeah. It, it, felt, it felt a lot like a GM going along with a wild player. It did, and it did so in the best way possible. And it, yeah, like the picture of Harry Dresden with his ribs taped up, riding atop a zombie T Rex, that is the series for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. I feel like that's kind of become the iconic Dresden Files <laughs> picture. It is, and it has. It's yeah. really hard to top that. Fun fact T Rexes have trouble cornering. <laughs> also, they're tiger striped. Also, they eat zombies. Well, I mean, if you were that tall and a carnivore, wouldn't you? I am that tall and I am a con- carnivore and I do. There we go. Also, yay technicalities. Mm-hmm. Yay. <laughs> so necromancy is technically breaking the law, but that only counts if you're raising up humans. Yep. Mm. Harry almost eats a bullet for that one. Nice. <laughs> Favorite moment? Um, I'm still working on that. There's a lot. Well, what's the one you like? It doesn't have to be a favorite. That's Favorite moment's a stupid way to put it. What's something that you think, oh, this was a cool moment in the Dresden Files? Either because it became a moment that the two of you connected over or for, of the story in itself. See, I always had fun with uh, just Lash and the whole back and forth between him, her, her and uh, Dresden. 
Right. So the ghost of Lash that was in Dresden's yes. head. Yeah. Which kind of always reminded me of, if you were familiar with Farscape, um, either oh, one of you. I am. Of Scorpius in, in Crichton's yes. brain. Um, only not so hideously ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Scorpius in Crichton's brain as played by the actress who played Chiana. There you go. That would work. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... Yeah, so what was All it? of the just, like, use me and be more powerful, and then, no, and the back and forth up until the sort of heroic sacrifice moment. She's also great because she calls out Butcher's own tendency to write in blonde bombshells by being a brunette. Too many blondes in your life. Yes. Too many dangerous blondes in your life. Oh, I yeah. needed to be brunette. <laughs> yeah, and I, I do sort of, so when, you're, when we're talking about Dresden's character and his tendency to, it's a woman must protect it's a yeah. kid that I'm related to must protect. Yeah. Um, that he's, he has a tendency to write a very noir style woman. Yeah. Um, instead of writing realistic women. Yeah. I'd say that's fair. I mean, he will write, you know, of course, Thomas Dresden's, you know, half yeah. brother, you know, has got all the goings on there too. Yeah. But you know, you never hear Dresden being described as being incredibly handsome. No. By you anyone. Don't, but part of that, I feel, is also because you see most of the series in Harry's eyes. Right. Like, uh, when you get Karen Murphy's perspective, she straight up likens him to, and I'm quoting the books here from memory, one of those autistic kids that can't meet you in the eyes. Yeah. That is her description of him. And it's like, that's kind of cringe-inducing. Right, but you've got Marcone, who's you know described as, well, beginning of a stereotype, but he gets better. And, you know, Those dollar Hendrix, bill eyes. Hendrix, you know, is With once again very stereotype, you know, being the yeah, muscle dude and stuff, that he doesn't tend to create a lot of characters until you get to the kids and then he sort of, you know, discusses them as real people until they get to not quite being kids. And you're like, okay, we're getting creepy again. Yeah. Um, it's, he plays a lot with archetypes and every now and then you see beyond the archetype and get to the real person, but you have to be comfortable just getting the archetype most of the time or it's not going to be as good for you. Yeah. Um, but uh, let's see. I my one of my favorite scenes. I think we already. I, well, I know I already mentioned it. Was the uh, the the asteroid strike on Casa Verde? <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, Haas, look up tonight. That's right. Um, you know the ability to say, "Oh, okay, wizards' powers go beyond what Dresden can do." Because Dresden's big deal is he's not the most skilled wizard, but he has a vast amounts of power, right? He can channel because of his arrogant force of will or his petulant nature or whatever it is, has supercharged his batteries. Determination intensifies. There you go. Yes. To a certain level, whatever it is, he's got the power. But especially when you hear Molly talking about, oh, I do it this way and I don't want to talk about how much easier it is to do it my way than the way Dresden does it because I don't want to shame him. <laughs> you know, yeah. Harry describes himself as being one of the top 30 wizards in the world in terms of just raw power at the start of the series before he gets all the power-ups. But when it comes to finesse and endurance, he just sucks. 
and that's a good thing because there are you see so many other little powers or promise of so many other powers that if Dresden could do all of these things, so many of the stories would sort of evaporate. Yeah. yeah. He he's a very adequately handicapped character for the things he has to deal with. Uh, but it is sort of interesting because he'll do something or they'll have a particular kind of communication or whatnot um, that would be useful later that you don't hear about. He suffers from the same sort of things that the, the Harry Potter books do is like, Oh, I could use this and be much more efficient, but instead we're dealing with a different problem. And so I'm not using these particular powers sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, but I think that's just the problem with using magic. Yeah, yeah, and magic almost hurts more than it helps in most cases, especially when he's got to deal with mortals. Mm. Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, he's got enough power to just put Marcone down in an instant, but then that would put him right back where he started as a murderer of a human being using magic. Mm Mm-hmm. And he actually starts the series under something called the Doom of Damocles because he murdered his mentor in self-defense. That didn't go over well. Nope. Um, as, a, as a person who does a lot of role-playing game stuff, one of the things that I really, one of the scenes that I also really liked um, was the, the, the sacrifice of Susan. Oh, God, that was a moment. Um, which once again, you're like, this only makes sense if you look at it from a certain angle, but the huge impact that it had on the story and just the, I think it was pretty brave. It was, and it was a real, just perfect moment of writing craftsmanship because Everything beforehand, it's these big full length paragraphs and then you close in on that moment and the sentences get shorter and shorter and shorter. And then you get the moment it happens and you're like, you can hear him sobbing through the print. Right. And they've done such a good job at building up Susan as an important character to Dresden. Yeah. If she had become a love interest at the beginning of the book or even at the beginning of the previous book, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Um, but he's been carrying a torch for her, so to speak, for ever. Yeah. yeah for, uh, you know, years um, to a point where it was beginning to get annoying. You know? Yeah. You're like, all right, we are ready for you to get past this. Time for you to move along. And then at the end of that book, you're like, I didn't mean that way. That's not <laughs> what I meant. Um, <laughs> you're like, too bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, too bad. You know, but um, just. So many authors, when they do a big world-changing event, it feels like the series is wrapping down, so now we can change the landscape of everything that's happening. Well, this is the middle book. This was the, the swerve in fiasco. Right. It really it really was, where the whole, the the whole universe changed. Yes. Um, and that that was the kind of thing where you go – Maybe I liked the story. Maybe I didn't. I happen to really like a lot, a lot of the things that were happening in that story. But it sort of spoke to me of the, he's very confident with what he's writing. Yes. And he's also a complete troll because he still insists that that book did not end on a cliffhanger. You're wrong, Jim. It was a cliffhanger. Um, you know, I think it wrapped everything up 
completely. <sighs> You're also wrong, Donald. <laughs> I, I think I think I think I think you're dead wrong. You're dead. Uh, um, uh, uh, which, yeah. So, <laughs> which brings us to ghost stories, where there was a big controversy about the audiobook. Yeah, they had to change the uh, reader for it. So James Marsters, the guy who played Spike in the Buffy series, has narrated almost all of the uh, Dresden Files stories. This was the first book that wasn't a short story collection that um, um, that had a different narrator. And it was uh, John Glover, who, if I recall correctly, played my favorite version of the devil in a 1990s show called uh, Brimstone. Yes. Um, now, in this book, such a good series. Harry Dresden's dead. Yeah. All right. And they talk about all the weird stuff that happens and that you feel as a ghost and the world feels so different. And you do all this stuff. And when I found out that they were getting James Marsters back for the next book, it all of a sudden felt perfect to have a different narrator yeah. for that book. And it was very well narrated. It was yeah. very well done. I mean, the guys, Glover's got, you know, his, his chops. Glover's um, good. And I, now I cannot download, I cannot get the old copy off of Audible anymore. They, they got rid of the Glover copy. It's all James Marsters now all the way because they went and they re-recorded it. And I just thought that it, it played so meta with, On you. with the whole, the whole series. Um, but I was just surprised at how angry people got, especially when they found out that Marsters was coming back for when in theory, Dresden may not be dead anymore. Yeah, that, that was a weird time mm. just in general. So what else is there Dresden related? We've, we've talked over the series. We've, we've gone. I think see, we've talked about the comics. We've, we haven't talked about the TV show. Oh, the TV show, which was basically Dresden in name only outside of a handful of details. The big two of which were the Jeep from World War II, which Butcher himself has said that he loved that as a detail. Mm -hmm. And Terrence Mann, who played that show's version of Bob. He, he was, was really good. He was great. Morgan wasn't horrible either, I didn't think. I, I feel like the problem with Morgan was that it was basically Sonya having a really bad day. Well, Morgan was never going to play well on television. Probably not. Um, but uh, also, I really was fond of the hockey stick that he used for his staff. That was a great idea. Um, <laughs> I, I confess that as someone who's never read the, who's never listened to the audiobooks, I still read everything in Paul Blackthorne's voice. And Paul Blackthorne was an amazing Dresden. He was. He like, he doesn't really look the part. I don't think he, he it's just his voice. His voice is perfect for Well, him. he's tall and thin, which is pretty much how Dresden's described dark hair, tall, thin, dark hair. That's fair. I mean, to me, it's just, his hair is a little too thin. Up Widow's top. Peaky. Yeah. Um, I don't care about that. I am a stickler for getting it right. I'm a terrible person when it comes to adaptations. Mm. Well, okay. But he had just the perfect voice for it. I still read the books in his voice. So, well, that's got to be exciting to be, you know, in the room next door and hear his voice coming out of your mouth. Oh, totally. <gasps> yeah. All right. 
Um, I don't know how he moved into my larynx like that, but, you know. I think it was that Denary that you picked up the other day. That's right. Oh, the one you handed me. Uh, mm-hmm. te- what if we... Technicalities, man. Technicalities. <sighs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah. One thing we didn't cover about the Black and Denarius, Denari, whatever, was how they keep popping back into circulation. And you expect that at some point there is going to be a Dresden Files book where it's rooting out the how do these things keep getting back into circulation. Yeah. That's a story or a short story that I really want to hear. Yeah, because it seems as if some of them get taken out of play for a couple centuries here and there, but they just always find their way back. Sometimes it's stated outright that Nicodemus just goes and breaks them out of containment. Other times they seemingly just tempt whoever's guarding them. But sometimes there's no real reason for it at all. But I mean, that would be a great Dresden Files role-playing game scenario is is dealing with that kind of stuff. And speaking of which, there's a Dresden Files role-playing game. There are two of them, actually. Well, One of them, the regular, the other, accelerated. And by accelerated, it's, hey, look, we've taken out some of the rules. And added a couple new ones. Oh, did they? Yeah. The mantles thing is not in the regular RPG. But it actually is in the accelerated version. But you could take anything they added and move it back up the chain, couldn't you? You probably could. Fate is very easy to modify. It's a pretty flexible system. Well, as this is not a role-playing game scenario, or no, I'm sorry, as this is not a role-playing game podcast, what is the role-playing system and, and why should we care? So the Dresden Files RPG system was built using Fate, which is produced by Evil Hat Games. Mm. And it's a very narrative system. You don't use your standard D20, what have you, that you use in D&D. Instead, the dice are all fudge dice or fate dice, depending on who you ask, which there's six siders. They've got a blank side, a plus side, and a minus side, Mm. two of each. And you roll four of them, and your result gets measured against your skills and against the challenge you're up against. And that tells you how well or how bad or how meh your results end up being. Then you've got these things called aspects, which you... Everyone seems to invoke them differently. Whenever I put them in a game, I make them basically just glorified special abilities. But they're phrases that sum up some element of your character and what they can do. Right. And that's sort of a character premise that says, I am this kind of person. And so because I'm that kind of person, I can do X, Y, or Z better. Magic detective of Chicago. Boom. One of my favorite fan-made high concepts that I've seen was Loremaster Rabbi, which, like, I kind of want to make that character one day. (laughs) That'd be amazing. Absolutely. So there are three volumes to the standard RPG. One is called Your Story, which contains all the rules, all the... They're not really classes, more like archetypes, all that stuff, along with some setting information on Baltimore, a.k.a. Nevermore. And then there's Our World, which includes every character of note in the Dresden Files right up until Small Favor. Mm. It's also got Chicago just fully statted out for you to use. Then there's Volume 3, which is the Paranet Papers, which has, I think, four campaigns in it, basically, or campaign setups, I should say, along with a couple new special abilities, 
a couple new character sheets, and some new powers just sprinkled in. So all you'd need to get hours and hours of play. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, not everybody's into role-playing games. Some of us like board games or card games a little better, and you've got a favorite along those lines. Stephanie? I do. The Dresden Files card game. Um, all right. Uh, so the Dresden Files card game is a cooperative game where basically everybody's got decks, and the decks are characters. So somebody might play Dresden. Somebody else might play Mouse. And you have a splay of cards out on the table, and you're trying to solve more cases than there are bad guys out there. Uh, and that's how you win. And it's really, really hard. And each case is one of the books, right? Um, yeah, each of the setups is one of the books. So you've got Stormfront and I got to buy the next two expansion packs. So I think it would be great if you're interested in this and you're into the Resident Files or you're doing a reread or you're doing a whatever read the book or listen to the book as I do and then play that one out and then continue on as another way to sort of continue your experience or enjoyment of the Dresden Files. Wait, there's a Netflix series coming out? I believe there's a proposed one. Oh, I, I well, remember, that doesn't mean anything then. Nah, Butcher has commented on it once or twice. And I think he's actually mentioned that it's a thing that's in planning. It's just hasn't really taken off the ground yet. Hmm. And then there's the comics, which are from Dynamite. Excellent. And so, actually, the Dresden Files card game comes with a set of fate dice in it, doesn't it? It comes with, I think, like two. So, sets. if you want to play the fate role playing game, the Dresden Files role playing game, you can buy it and the board game and not have to buy the dice separately. Yeah. All right. But we're not advertising for them. This is not happening. Uh, the card game also comes with fate points. That you can just use. Saying. Yeah. You're, you're like halfway there. I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, anyway, I really like the Dresden Files. I look forward to when a new book comes out. Just recently, there was a collection of short stories released. Briefcases? Some, yes. Some of which were very interesting. Um, some of which were, um, it was sort of neat to see the take from characters that we'd never met before or who had not been the character you were hearing it from their voice. There's one told from Mouse's perspective. Yeah, there's also Butter's first day on the job as a Knight of the Cross and Harry getting called for jury duty, which I'm all about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I've never been called for jury duty. They keep calling me for jury duty every two years, but that's when I end up moving. You're like, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm out. I am. <laughs> I think next time I move, I'm just going to call up whoever's in charge of that and just like volunteer right out the gate. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one way to not get accepted for a jury is to go in and volunteer for <laughs> jury duty. Uh, Curses. He's on to me. And so, yeah, go check it out. There's, you know, he's got other series. He's got other books he's written. I'm sure that they are also fun and or entertaining. Um, but uh, if you're looking for a fix of magical urban fantasy with a noir twist, Wait, I don't know. How would you describe? You were pretty much on the money. Yeah. Magical urban fantasy with a noir twist. That never happens. Um, yeah, go check out the Dresden Files if we haven't already spoiled it for you. To, to be fair, though, from our aimless ramblings, you're going to be awfully surprised when a lot of this stuff happens in the books. Yeah, I mean, even if we did spoil some things for you, don't worry. You're going to like it anyway. And there's a lot more there. 
Yes. With umpteen books already in production. We didn't even talk about the Bolshevik Muppet incident. Um, Let's not talk about it. Yeah. We'll leave that for, for the after party. Let, let everybody know where you are and where you can be found on the internet one last time. Stephanie? Stephanie Fry. You can find me on Twitter at Steph F. Fry. Ben Blythe. You can find me on Twitter at Flailing Writer. And I'm Donald Dennis. You can find me all over the internet as Walsfio. Thanks for listening to another Inverse Genius production. You can find out more about the people who create the show and all of our other fine podcasts at InverseGenius.com, such as Onboard Games, on RPGs, Games in Schools and Libraries, and the RoomScape Divas. Oh, and on Minis Games, and probably another one I'm forgetting. Anyway, I'm Donald Dennis. And I'm Steph Fry. And I'm Ben Blythe. Thank you for listening. That's it for this episode of the Inverse Genius Podcast. The Inverse Genius Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 License. Thank you.